and just how blessed. If that doesn't fire you up, then your wick is wet. There is a story from the early days of World War II about a hungry little boy and a soldier in the badly damaged city of London. The boy was peering through the fogged up glass of a bakery shop as the bakers pulled out row after row after row of fresh donuts out of the oven. And he wanted one so bad, but he didn't have a dime in his ragged uh, little pockets. And so a soldier came around the corner of his Jeep, and he jammed on the brakes, and, and he knew immediately what was happening. And so he walked over to the boy, and he asked me, he said, hey, little boy, he said, do you, do you want one of those donuts? Yeah, said the little boy. And so the soldier walked inside and bought a dozen hot donuts and gave them to the little boy. The little boy was dumped out. He stared at the soldier, and five few awkward moments passed. He just blurted out, Mr. Are you God? And the moral of that story is there is power in donuts. Amen? The story is that that same thing should be true of our lives, that no one ever is mistaking us for God, but that the way that we interact with people, our attitudes and our actions, the thing that spring forth out of us, the things that are the overflow of our DNA as a disciple of Jesus Christ, uh, would never cause a person to wonder, do we belong to Him in fact? Well, this morning, I'm invited to take your Bibles and turn near the back uh, to the book of 1 John as we begin a study called uh, The DNA of a Disciple. This will be a six-week series, and so kind of a more a little bit of an overview as opposed to a literal verse-by-verse that we normally teach through. And so this uh, series, we're going to teach the highlights and the key principles of these five uh, chapters. And so, now, despite my protest, my elementary teacher was actually right when she said uh, that repetition is a good uh, tool for learning. And so, uh, let me just repeat yet again that the key to understanding a verse or a passage or even an entire book like the book of First John is three uh, simple words. Context, context, and the third word is context. Yeah, some of you didn't get that, so that, that makes me nervous. All right. So since we're beginning a new book study, uh, I want to kind of set the context because if we don't understand the foundation of, of why he's even writing, uh, then, then the foundation is going to be off and everything that we build on top of that will be off as well. And so let me just kind of give you the context and the purpose of writing here in, in 1 John. So if you read through the book of 1 John, which I would encourage and even challenge you that throughout this uh, six-week series that every single week you would read through the book of 1 John, just five chapters. And so if you'd like to do Monday through Friday, you could read through the book of 1 John every single week of this series in just a few minutes a day. But if you do, would do that, you would discover that at four times, John tells us why he's writing. You don't have to wonder. There are four different times in these five chapters. He says, hey, I'm writing these things because, or I'm writing this so that, and so we know exactly uh, some of his purposes in writing. So he kind of lists out four of them in four chapters as you read through there. In First John chapter 1, verse 4, he says, we write this to make our joy complete. And that, that's a good thing. We all desire that, I hope. But secondly, he says in First John chapter 2, verse 1, uh, he says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Which, by the way, if you don't know this, uh, sinning and joy are like oil and water. Okay, the only thing that should ever rob a Christian of our joy. is not our circumstances, not trials. It's sin because it quenches the Spirit of God and the work of God in our lives and robs us of our joy. So, uh, thirdly, he says this. Uh, he wanted to warn the reason against false teachers that had crept in the church. I'll kind of tell you uh, in a minute why that happened. But in uh, chapter 2, verse 26, he said, I'm writing these things to you 
about those who are trying to lead you astray. And so he's addressing the issue of false teachers. And then fourthly, uh, he writes to offer believers the assurance of salvation. First uh, John chapter 5, verse 13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may not hope, not wonder, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And many preachers and authors and, and scholars and commentators uh, would argue that, yes, all those four themes are purposes for writing, but they would actually argue that the assurance of salvation is the most dominant theme, and I certainly see the argument for that. Recently, there was a little book that was written, if you're struggling with the assurance of salvation, or you know someone that is, there was actually a little book that was written, I'm using as a part of my prep and research for this series, uh, written called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. Just stop it, right? And the subtitle is, How to Know for Sure You Are Saved. And it was based on a sermon series that was taught out of First John with the idea that you, know, you don't have to over and over you know, pray and ask Jesus in your heart over and over. You can be assured, you can, be, uh, you can know that you have eternal life just like First John chapter 5, verse 13 uh, talks about. So, this morning as we uh, look at each of these four themes uh, throughout this series, uh, this morning we're just going to focus on chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 10. And I want us to see in chapter 1 three principles for growing closer to the Father. Three principles for growing closer to the Father. One of the assurances of salvation is not an event. Like when someone talks about you, about the assurance of your salvation and the fact that you know you belong. Listen, don't, don't just refer to an event like I walked down an aisle or I prayed this prayer or I got baptized or confirmed or I went to this class. Or listen, one of the assurances of salvation is a vibrant, intimate, growing relationship with the Father. His Spirit bearing witness with your spirit is what Scripture talks about. That's the greatest assurance of salvation is the vibrant work of the Holy Spirit of God working and growing you on the inside in your own heart. But not only does uh, intimacy with God build assurance and that vibrancy of our relationship, intimacy with God is actually uh, the, the vehicle, is the way that we obtain joy in our lives. Remember in chapter 1, verse 4, he said, I'm writing these things so that your joy may be complete, so that your joy may be full. Listen, hear me this morning. That doing the work of God is not where joy comes from. Knowing things about God is not where joy comes from. The psalmist said this. He said, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. And so growing close to the Father gives us assurance of our salvation. His spirit bears witness with our spirit, but also it produces joy uh, in the life of the believer, which is one of the purposes John writes according to chapter 1, verse 4. So let's pick up this text and begin the series this morning in John Chapter 1, verse 1. He said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and which manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. And so kind of his opening remarks, he's basically, hey, listen, I'm not passing on a rumor. This, this is not hearsay. These are the things that were declared to us by Jesus. And on His behalf and His authority, we're speaking these things to you. And the reason we're speaking these things to you, introductory here, is so that your joy may be full, so that you can grow and the joy of knowing the Lord. And so then in verses 5 through 10, then he begins the description of how that actually happens. 
Like what's required and what's what's uh, on our part? And so how does that actually happen? Well, verse 5 starts off. He says, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So let me give you a little more context this morning. John is writing near the end of his life, near the end of the first century. And basically who John is writing and addressing would be what we would call a second and third generation Christians. That this first generation Christian that was so new, it was so radical, you were kind of a rebel to be following Jesus and, and to finally realize that you were free from the law and the demands of the law and the penalty of the law through the person and work of Jesus. I mean, they just couldn't help but be zealous. But what often happens, which is true in our lives, is that uh, when we get further away we get from our salvation experience, our uh, enthusiasm begins to wax and wane a little bit. And so he's writing to second and third generation Christians here near the end of the first century, uh, near the end of his life. And he's kind of addressing a couple of topics here. One is the issue of false teachers. He said, hey, listen, uh, you've allowed complacency to creep in. I I know that some of you, this is a faith that was handed down to your second generation. You may be a third generation Christian, so it's not as exciting as it was to your parents or your grandparents or the generations before you. And so because of that, that complacency has overtaken your lives. And when complacency overtakes our spiritual lives, we become prime targets for two things. One of them is false teaching. Because here's what happens. Sometimes, if we're honest, we get tired of hearing the same old truths from Scripture. Do we not? That, that, that sometimes there is a year, we're always on the lookout for the next prayer of Jabez. Like this next magical, undiscovered thing, and it's new, and it's exciting, and so we just run towards it, never asking hard questions, uh, like, is it true? And so we become prime candidates for false teaching uh, and, and doctrines that are not, they're not centered on the Word of God, but they seem exciting when we get complacent. The other thing is when we get complacent, uh, we, we set ourselves up for sin and rebellion. Everyone in the room this morning has sat back and watch someone else destroy their life through sin and its consequences. And sometimes from the outside, we sit back and we look at that and we say, how'd that happen? Like, I used to sit next to them in church. They were a good person. We worked together in the student ministry. We were in life group. They, they, they led my life group. How in the world did that happen? Well, I don't, listen, every situation is unique. But let me tell you some things that are common in all of those stories. Is that a person who ruined their life in rebellion started before that drifting, and before that drifting started, complacency had settled in their heart. And their faith was what's new and fresh and vibrant and exciting. They become complacent, so they start looking for some excitement in the words of the great prophet in all the wrong places. Amen? And so that's exactly Urban Cowboy. Just anybody know what Urban Cowboy is? You know, the rest of you are Christians. So, but that's what happens. Right? That's what happens. Complacency begins to set inside of our lives. And so how do you guard your heart from that? How, how, do you, how do you grow closer to the Father continually, which is the design and heart of God? Well, this passage, I'm going to walk you through three principles for growing closer to the Father. I don't care if you've been a Christian for two months 
or two decades or 60 years. These principles are true in everyone's life. Three principles for growing closer to the Father. The first one we find is simply this. It's have a right picture of Him. Have a right picture of who God really is. Where do we find that? We find that in verse 5, and we're going to spend the majority of our time here this morning, first off, because this is a foundational passage, that if you don't understand the truth being taught here in verse 5, about having a clear picture of who God is, then listen, the foundation is off, and everything that you build in your spiritual life on top of that foundation will be off. Every single thing. So there's a theological reason we're going to spend some time here, but there's also a practical reason. And here's the reason. Have you noticed this? That the church in America is like a mile wide and an inch deep. Have you noticed? There's a lot of nominal cultural Christianity going on. And sometimes you sit back and wonder, where does that stem from? Listen, it stems from the error of not addressing the truth here in 1 John chapter 5 and understanding exactly what he says here. Look at verse 5 again. What does he say? How does God describe himself? This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. This is not rumor. This is not second hand. This is what we have heard and we declare to you as those who walk with Jesus. Verse 5, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so, listen, if you want to go closer to the Father, if you want to have a right picture of God, which is crucial for growing closer to him, here's the first thing we see is simply this. To have fellowship with God, we must begin with his authoritative revelation of himself. What's he say? He says, listen, this is what we heard from Jesus. We, we walked with him. This is, this, is not, this is exactly what he declared the nature of the Father. And so what we have heard, we are declaring to you based on the authority of who he says that he is. Notice John doesn't begin here with the hears uh, felt needs. He, he doesn't bring up things about how the message will help them have a happy life, successful personal life. Just listen, John brings us face to face, not with not with God's love, but with God's holiness. In coming, uh, having fellowship with God, you would expect John, John to say something like, hey, to have fellowship to God, you need to know that God loves you very, uh, very much. And yes, he does, but John doesn't start in approaching God. He'd say, listen, here's what you need to know about God. Here's what you need to know is that he is light and in him dwells darkness at all. And so when they have that contrast about darkness and referring to God as light, it is a reference to the holiness of God. That's exactly what he's describing there. And so why is that important? Why, why is that practical? Why does that affect what we do, how we relate to God, how we structure what we teach, and all those kinds of things? A preacher from years ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones, wrote a book called Fellowship with God. That's exactly what First John is talking about. He says it always has to start with God and who God really is. He argues that our main problem is self-centeredness, and so often we come to the Christian faith. Now, now listen, this is interesting. This book was written years ago. Here, here's what he said. He said, so often we come to Christian faith looking to have our needs met. I'm not happy. Can God make me happy? I'm looking for something I don't have. Can God give it to me? How can Christianity help me with my problems and my needs? He said, the problem is this. You don't start with God. You start with the problem, which is self-centeredness. And so he goes on to write in that book. He said, the first answer of the gospel can always be put this way. Forget yourself and contemplate God. The way to be delivered from self-centeredness is to stand in the presence of God. Listen, that is so true. 
But it's such a good word in our culture. And so what happens when these churches don't start with God and the, as the center of their theology? They start with people's needs and their wants and their felt needs and cater everything they do and everything they teach and try to package it where people come in and say, this is your needs and those kinds of things. Well, let me tell you exactly what happened. Many, many years ago, a couple of decades ago, uh, there was a book written by Robert Schuller called Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. And here's uh, a little snippet of what he said in that book. He said this. He said, uh, classic theology has erred in its insistence that theology be God-centered instead of what it should be, which is man-centered. Did you hear that? That theology should not be God-centered. It should be man-centered. And the churches that have bought into that are catering everything to what people want and what people's felt needs are. And they package all their teaching around that instead of just logo and saying, listen, the God we serve is a holy God and the key to coming to Him is coming in holiness. And re- uh, packaging all of those things around it. And so uh, this morning, I hope you understand this, that when you come here, our focus is to open up the Word of God and reveal who He is, not who you and I want Him to be or need Him to be, but He is the thrice Holy God. And I hate, listen, I hate to disappoint people this morning. You know me. But i got to tell you this morning. When you come in, listen, we're not here this morning to meet your needs. You understand that? We're here this morning to lift high the name of Jesus Christ. Because when people encounter who He is in the fullness of His glory, in the beauty of His wholeness, like the psalmist said, guess what? All their needs will be met in Christ Jesus. It is a byproduct of what we do. It is not the focus of what we do. And so we're gathered to get a lift up high and to exalt who Jesus is. And the theological principle behind that is we evaluate everything. You know how we evaluate? Listen, we've been growing. I'm grateful for that. Uh, the, the worship attendance last week was just phenomenal. It was actually higher than what's in the worship. It was over 1,400 when we counted to the preschoolers. Listen, I'm grateful for that. But can you, can you hear me this morning? that the mark of success is not how many people are coming to the church. That, 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 that's not the mark. Like, I don't sit back and look, oh, those people are coming. Right? Listen, the mark of success is this God being presented as who He is, and are we calling people to that standard to worship Him, the beauty of His holiness that Psalms talks about. And I could go the rest of my ministry without someone undiscerningly saying you know, that God is really blessing that church. Well, how do you know? Because it's really growing. Can I just share with you that cancer also grows really quickly? And the mark of the church is not the size of the church. The mark of the church is the health of the church. And the health of the church is determined on having a right view of a thrice holy God. You've got to approach God, not who you want Him to be, not who you need Him to be, but who He has declared to be. And John said, listen, I'm telling you, this is what we've seen and we've heard and we're declaring to you that God is light and in Him dwells no darkness. And so in approaching God and growing closer to Him, you've got to start with His authoritative revelation of who He is, not who you want Him to be. Second, we also find to grow closer to God. We've got to begin... Begin, not with a D on the S, begin with His holiness. And so now do we acknowledge the picture of how God has chosen to reveal Himself in approaching God? We begin with His holiness. Again, church marketers would say, listen, God is holy doesn't sell tickets. God is holy isn't popular. It's a lot more attractive if you say that God is loving, but when you call people and say God is light and God is holy, it's not as attractive. But can I just say this morning, but it's not what's attractive. It's what's true that matters. John said, He is light and in Him dwells 
no darkness. And so why would we start with the holiness of God in approaching Him and in growing closer to Him? Here's what I understand. Listen closely. If you don't begin with God's holiness, you'll never understand God's plan of salvation through the cross. Apart from the holiness of God, there is no need for the cross. If there was only the love of God at the exclusion of the holiness of God, there's no need for the cross. And so if you don't start with the holiness of God in approaching Him, then you don't even understand the foundation of the gospel which allows us a relationship to a holy God. We have a culture that does not like the holiness of God. We have a culture that's enamored with the love of God at the exclusion. Is God love? Absolutely. But we have a culture that's enamored with the love of God at the exclusion of the holiness of God. It's a well-documented fact that I do not have a Facebook page. It is an equally well-documented fact that I am a creeper on my wife's page. This week, someone posted on her page, or I saw it, however that works, I don't even know. Uh, one of those funny e-cards. You see those are like old like e-cards, like, uh, like olden times, but they're, but they're not. And so one of the e-cards spoke to this point. Uh, that we want the love of God, but not the holiness of God, and so we do things that don't make sense. And so when it said, uh, in one minute, your posts are cussing folk out. The next minute, you're quoting scriptures. Can I get witness? Is that not true? Is that not like all over uh, people's Facebook? Do you know why that is? Why lots of people in our culture, uh, on one, one minute, are cussing folks out, and the next minute, are quoting scriptures? Do you know why that is? It's because they've created a new version of God, a user-friendly God, and they've removed the holiness of God for sake and the exclusion of the love of God. And in doing so, they no longer worship the God of the Bible. They serve a cosmic Santa Claus is what's going on there. And so when I approach God, I've got to understand, listen, God is not, I can't say this enough this morning, God is not who you want Him to be or who you need Him to be. God is who He is, who He has chosen to reveal Himself. And First John chapter 1, verse 5 says, he is light, and in Him dwells no darkness. He is holy. So I've got to start off approaching the holiness aspect of God's nature when I approach Him. And here's the question. I like doctrinal teaching, but I love practical, right? Like, how, how do I know I'm doing that? If I want to do that, I hope I'm doing that. How do I know that's happening in my life? Let me give you the evidence that you're approaching God with the right picture of who He is, not who you want Him to be. The evidence of a right picture is humility. The evidence of a right picture of God in my life that I'm pursuing Him as He is, not who I want Him to be or need Him to be, is humility, is growing in my life. When I'm approaching God in His holiness, the only outcome with a genuine encounter with the presence of a holy God is humility because I am more aware of my own sinfulness when I encounter His holiness. Let me put it as plain as I can. If you're not growing in humility, you're not growing closer to God. That's as plain as I can put that. Look at verse 6. What's he saying? First John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him, in other words, if we say we argue, I have a great relationship with God, I have an intimate fellowship with Him, I'm walking with Him daily. So if you say, verse 6, if we say that, we have fellowship with Him, and walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. Cunningham paraphrase of verse 6 is if you're walking in darkness and you're fine with it, you may be out for a walk, but you're not walking with the God of the Bible. Because when I come and I'm in intimate fellowship with the Father, I'm walking with Him in an intimate way. Guess what? Uh, I'm so broken over my sin. I'm not prideful about it. I'm not denying it. I'm not justifying my deeds of darkness. I'm broken over my own sinfulness. Do we see that anywhere else in Scripture? Yes. Isaiah chapter 6, the first words that come out of the prophet's mouth when he comes into the presence of the holy God is not, wow, this is me. 
What's he say? He says, no, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. And so the evidence that I have a right picture of God's holiness is that I am growing in humility because as I get closer to him, it reveals my own sinfulness. And I'm broken and humbled over it. Second thing in approaching God and growing closer to the Father, one, you've got to have a right picture of who he is, not who you want him to be, not who you need to be, but who he is. Secondly, you've got to understand what he expects. You've got to understand what he expects. You know, one of the words that we, uh, we hate in church is the word rules, do we not? Like, how many of you would be self-described rule breakers? Like, you just, if there's a rule that's made to be broken, then nobody's admitting that in church, are they, right? Nope, I'm straight. But, but, but the reality is this, is that if you don't like the word rules, but let me give you another uh, word that may help you. It's the word expectations. Right? That's a little more seeker-friendly. You know me, I always be seeker-sensitive. And so, the, the word expectations. Can we disagree this morning? That there are no significant relationships apart from stated or unstated expectations. And if you don't think that's true, then in one of your significant relationships, your spouse, your children, whoever it is, just, just kind of break an unwritten rule, cross over line, and you'll find out that's true, alright? They will let you know you've broken expectations. And so the reality is this, and that's a part of every uh, significant relationship. I had the privilege of officiating a wedding this weekend for just a wonderful young couple. You know what they did? They did what every other couple did. They got up and they, and they spoke and exchanged some vows. You know what those vows are? They're spoken expectations. This is what I'm expecting from you. This is what I'm expecting from you. Do you commit these things? I do. I do. We do those things. It is a spoken expectations. Now, so in growing deeper in a relationship to the Father, we've got to understand. What are the expectations in that relationship? Now, I want you to listen incredibly closely to this next statement I'm going to make. So if you're listening, say amen. Good. Here's what I'm talking about. We're talking about growing closer to the Father, not earning His favor. Let me repeat that. We're talking about growing closer to the Father, not earning His favor. His favor is solely gained by grace. So we're not talking about, we're just talking about growing closer to Him. And so living out these expectations has nothing to do with relationship and everything to do with fellowship. Look at verses 78 because he tells us some things that he expects that are the overflow. That Yes, he's holy. And so as a result of that, if I'm going to grow closer to a holy God, here's some things that God expects in my walk with him. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the line. Now, the word if there, if you like to mark your Bible, you can circle that. And you can write it next to it. Conditional. There are unconditional covenants in Scripture. There are conditional covenants. This is a conditional statement in Scripture that if you do this, then God in turn will respond this way. And so verse 7 uh, is a conditional statement. Verse 7 says, but if we walk in line. Now, what does it mean to walk in line? Because that's kind of Christianese, is it not? That's like languages and phrases only Christians use. Like if you go to work tomorrow and people say, what did you do all weekend? You know, I spent most of the weekend walking in line. You know what they're going to think? They're going to think you spent all weekend smoking dope. That's what they're going to think, all right? Because nobody talks like that, right? Walking just means your daily lifestyle, the habitual attitudes and actions of your life. And walking in the light, we said the light is a reference to God's holiness. So when he talks about walking in the light, he's talking about living with personal holiness or practical righteousness is what he's describing. Okay, so in verse seven, he says, but if conditional, we walk in the light or we walk in personal holiness as he is light, we have fellowship with one another and. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see that? Conditional. Verse 9, what's he say in verse 9? He makes another conditional statement. If, conditional, we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all 
righteousness. And so in it says, like, we love that part, do we not? Like God cleansing us, God, God giving us a fresh start, a clean slate, whatever language you like. But those are conditional statements. And so the conditions that God expects in this relationship that we live out as the overflow or recognition that He is holy, uh, the first one is confessing our sins. Walking in holiness is one of them. Confessing our sins is another one there. It's a conditional uh, statement. To confess simply means this. It means in the original language, the word confess, it means to agree with God is what the word confession means. It means to agree with God. And confession is the precursor to repentance. And repentance is what leads to growth and change and brings life, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And so the reason we don't always experience the change and the growth and all those things is because we don't come to a place of repentance. And the reason we don't come to a place of repentance is because we are so hesitant to confess our sins. Like we're really quick to defend them. Well, yes, I did that, but I did that because they did this. Or, or, or situational ethics, well, I know that's what this Bible says, but in this situation, I did it instead. Or we just kind of, well, it wasn't really a sin, it was just a, a, a just, you know, lack of a discernment, or I just made a bad judgment call, but it wasn't sin. And hear me this morning, I agree with Corey Tim Boom, the late author, who said this about confession. She said, the blood of Jesus has never cleansed an excuse. The blood of Jesus has never cleansed an excuse. And so when we walk in light, it exposes the deeds of darkness, and that should bring conviction in our lives, and conviction should lead to confession or agreeing with God about our sins. Let me speak a quick word about conviction. That's a word we don't talk about, so there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding, and there's actually some bondage related to that you don't Listen, there are two types of conviction. One is general. Like, it's just people feeling guilty all the time, they just feel shameful all the time, those kind of things. Listen, general conviction is not from God, it's from the enemy. He wants to enslave you in guilt and shame and false guilt and keep you there. You can't even bring, yes, the Holy Spirit to search your heart. You can't, uh, he brings nothing to mind. You just feel guilty all the time. Listen, that's from the enemy. But when God convicts us, the Holy Spirit convicts us, it's related to a specific area of our lives. Something we did or we said or an attitude or an action that the Holy Spirit begins to reveal and just convicts us over and over. And that conviction should lead to confession. And that confession leads to repentance. And repentance leads to Restoration in life is what it talks about. And so he says, listen, if, if you'll confess your sins, oh, these are the expectations of this relationship. And so why is he calling us? Because the false teachers were teaching things. They crept in and say, listen, you can get to a state of perfection and no longer sin. That's some of the false teachings. On the other end, they say, but if you don't get to that place, you can continue to sin and still have a close fellowship with God. And John's saying, hey, listen, all that's false. Oh, that's all false teaching." And there are some people still promoting that. You can get to a place of sales perfection and the holiness movement. You can live in that place of perfection. I, I agree with a preacher one time who was approached by a man who told him he's no longer sinning. And the preacher very wisely and quickly said, I'd like to have a talk with your wife. If you think you're not sinning, guys, ask your wife. You are. So the more we get close to the Lord, the more He reveals our own sins and we confess those things. What about the person, though? who's walking in darkness. You see the difference. The person who's walking in darkness is barely aware of their sin. They're so blinded by the darkness, they're barely even aware of their sin, and when someone else tries to lovingly point it out to them because they love them and know the consequences of that, they get incredibly defensive because they're so ignorant of their sin, they're walking in darkness. But the person who's walking in the light is aware of it. Why? Because the light reveals the deeds of darkness and men love deeds of darkness is what the gospel says. Let me make this personal instead of doctrinal. 
how quick are you to confess your sins? When the Holy Spirit prompts it, or when someone who loves you enough to share truth with you shares it, how quick are you to confess your sins? Do you find yourself defensive? Do you find yourself justifying, well, yes, I did do that, but it's because they did it. How quick are you to confess our sins? The Prussian king, Frederick the Great, was once touring a Berlin prison. The prisoners fell on their knees before him to proclaim their innocence, except for one man who remained silent. And so Frederick called in and said, Why are you here? Armed robbery, your majesty, was the reply. Are you guilty? Yes, indeed, your majesty, and I deserve my punishment. So Frederick summoned the jailer and ordered him, Release this guilty wretch at once. I will not have him kept in this prison where he will corrupt all the fine, innocent people who occupy it. Can I tell you that sometimes we're those other prisoners and we're staying in prison in our own self-righteousness if we confess our sins. Conditional, if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we walk in the light. Verses 7 9. Here's the last thing. We're almost done. Going closer to the Father, we understand who He is, not who we want Him to be. Verse 5, we understand what His expectations are. Verses 7 and the beginning of verse 9. And then thirdly, we go closer to the Father when we can see His heart. When we can see the motive behind God's expectations, we run towards Him in repentance, not away from Him in rebellion. When we can see that He's defined these expectations, not to control us or to keep us down, but because He loves us and wants to maintain that relationship with us. Then... I don't see those rules, not as rules, but as expectations for an intimate relationship. Look at verse 9, what's it say? If we confess our sins, expectation. Here's what we can expect from Him. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, when we talk about words like confession and repentance, it has a negative connotation in our culture. Even if it's not negative, it's heavy. Like if you at home and say, what's your pastor talking about today? He talked about confession and repentance. Ooh, would be angry, right? But that's how we feel. You know why God expects those things? It's because He wants to keep close relationship and fellowship with us. It's because He wants us to stay close to Him and He knows sin separates us from Him. And so He said, no, don't live that way. There's a better way to live. Listen, even in the Ten Commandments that seemed like rules that God was making so people could have a relationship with Him. Listen, even the Ten Commandments weren't so that people could have a relationship with God they were for the people who were already in a covenant relationship with God so that they could avoid sin, God could protect them, and keep them close to His heart instead of chasing idols. Even from the very beginning, all the expectations of God are not to control you, but to protect the intimacy of that relationship with Him. And when you see God's heart, when you see the motive of God that He just wants to love you and bring you in close, you don't run from Him in rebellion, you run towards Him in repentance. And I've got so much more to say. I'm a fount of wisdom. Amen. Amen. I'm a fount of something. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to move down to you. Our God is holy. Our God is who He is. Not who we want Him to be or need Him to be. And He is holy. But He still desires the relationship with us. I hope I never come to a place, no matter how long I've been saved or how long I've been preaching, where that truth doesn't still overwhelm me. 
that I'm, I've never come to a place where I'm no longer enamored with the truth of the gospel, which says, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the reality that each one of us has to wrestle with this morning. Here's the reality. You are as close to God as you want to be. You are as close to God as you want to be. And if that convicts you this morning, then let me give you some good news. If you'll take a step towards Him, the response of God will not be this. It will not be this. It will not be this. That is good news, and that is the gospel. I'm glad to pray with you this morning, if you would.